You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. So if people read the Bible, and I mean read through the books of the Bible, not just take snippets of verses to justify whatever position or whatever thought they might have, if you read the Bible, it is impossible to come away with the idea that mankind is good. It's, it's impossible to come away with the idea that mankind is righteous, that mankind is faithful, that mankind is, is in any way the center, that there is hope that there's faith in humanity. You know, I've heard, I've seen so many Facebook updates where let's say there's like ducklings stuck in a sewer and some random person says, I'm going to rescue them. And then rescues like two ducklings and everyone's like, oh my goodness, faith in humanity restored. I'm like, really? That's all it takes? That's all it takes? No other book out there makes it as real as the Bible does when it comes to flaws within humanity, character flaws. You know, all these books, you'll always hear stories of people elevating the main characters and these figures of even other holy scripture, other holy books too that are, you know, outside the Bible I'm talking about. But, you know, it's interesting. You know, one of my favorite books is The Lord of Rings, right? Can't hear Woot Woot? Anyways, whatever. So, so <clears throat> take for instance, there's a, there's a guy named Boromir, okay? He's the son of the steward of Gondor. This guy in the movie is played by Sean Bean, the guy who always dies in other movies. Anyways, so there's a scene when he attacked Frodo to get the ring. And in this one of this character analysis blogs that I sometimes read, it describes Boromir as, get this, the victim of desire for the ring. The victim of desire for the ring. Like, like it really wasn't his fault, you know? Like he was the victim, but fortunately later he redeems himself by fighting the oncoming army of Urukai. He's killed in battle. Spoiler alert, sorry. And so in his bravery, he allowed the other members of the fellowship to survive. So this guy is esteemed as a hero, even though he tried to steal the ring, even though he, the ring would have corrupted him, even though they would have to have started all over again, even though everyone on Middle Earth would have died and Sauron would win. But yeah, he was a victim of desire. It's not his fault. Well, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat things like Tolkien did. In fact, the Bible takes it, a different way, a different approach, because from the beginning speaks truth in that we learn of great people who do great things, but they also have great failures too. And these people who have failed greatly, they don't redeem themselves because they can't, because only God does. You see, they fail, but God in his goodness redeems them. That's God. It's not us. I can't redeem myself. We can't redeem ourselves. It's God. So in this chapter, we learn that Abram, a man of faith, he's not actually doing all too well because remember earlier on, he went to Egypt and he said, he tried to save his own neck so he he said that his wife was actually his sister, right? What a great husband. But not only that, now he really shows in this chapter how faithless he really is. 
definitely not a heroic moment for Abram. So those are a few points I believe the Lord wants us to hear from this passage today because here we learn of the faithlessness of man, but also in this chapter we see that in the midst of human failings, God, he reveals again his faithfulness. That God, again, in the midst of our corruption, our darkness, and our many, many failings, God says, I will show you my compassion for you. I will show you my grace. Can everyone say hallelujah? So here's our first point. Wait on God. Can you say wait on God? So I want to clear up a couple things here. There is no book of Hezekiah in the Bible. Okay, he was a great king, loved the Lord. He had a really bad dad, but he was a great king. Okay? So, but there's no book of Hezekiah in the Bible. I, I sometimes joke with people. I say, you know what? You guys should really read Hezekiah chapter 5. And they're like, oh, yes, Hezekiah chapter 5. No, there's no Hezekiah chapter 5 or anything like that. And a lot of Christians, they think there's some weird saying that they've heard around and that they think is scriptural. Like, for instance, God works in mysterious ways. Have you guys ever said that? Don't lie. You've all said that before, haven't you, right? But something bad happens. You're like, God works in mysterious ways. Where is that found in the Bible? It's somewhere in the Bible. No, it's not, okay? How about this? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Have you guys said that before? Yeah, again, that's not biblical. Okay, there's nothing in the Bible that says that. And here's the last one. God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard that one before? We've said that before, haven't we? Maybe we even believe it. It's not in the Bible. It's just not in the Bible. Okay, so let's all as a church promise to never ever say those phrases ever again unless it's a joke, and even then I won't laugh, Okay? But before I get into the passage, I want to comment on that phrase of God helps those who help themselves. Like, I get what the message is behind that. Like, we're still called to do what we can do. I mean, Apostle Paul, he always talks about God's sovereignty. It's often connected with human responsibility. And that, yes, we can't just sit idly by and expect things to just fall in our laps and expect things to just happen. Like, God, he does the saving, right? He does the choosing. He does the electing. But God uses you and I, human agents, to share the saving gospel message, right? So God, he does it, but he uses you and I. But I think a lot of people misinterpret this saying and believe that God will only get this, that God will only help those who help themselves. And if that's the case, then that goes completely against the gospel message because the gospel is that we can't help ourselves at all, ever, not even in our best day. We can't help ourselves no matter how hard we try, but God, he helps us anyways because God is a God of grace. Anyways, that's my pulpit rant for the week. Okay, back to the text. So Abram and Sarai, they did not wait on the Lord. Now let's look into why and how they failed. Maybe we can learn a thing or two about this. Waiting on God, it can seem long, right? Just waiting. It can seem even sometimes hopeless. According to verse 3, we know that Abram and his wife, they've been living in the land and he's been clinging on to this promise that God gave them for almost for already 10 years. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine, okay? I'm, I was married to a naval officer who was deployed for one month. And even one month, I'm like, that's a long time. Can you imagine being gone for 10 years and still holding fast to that marriage, still, still holding fast to that promise. God is saying, I'm going to do this for you. I'm committing myself to you. Here are my promises. Just wait. And these guys are waiting in the land of promise, and they've been waiting for 10 years already. 
And so this promise to have children, 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 many descendants, it seemed foolish 10 years ago when the promise was made, when they were already old. But now this promise is 10 years older, and they are older, which seems even more ridiculous to Abram, because now he's like 85 years old, and his wife is not far behind. I mean, seriously, how long, how much more, God, do I have to wait for you? How much more? This is getting kind of ridiculous. I waited 10 years. I've been faithful. I've been holding fast to your promises. But 10 years is a long time. And so in verse 2, we begin to see the wearing down of their faith as they waited on the Lord. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And so Sarai is beginning now to feel sorry for herself. She's beginning to feel sorry for herself. She's beginning to see herself as a victim, as someone who believes that God doesn't care for her, so she begins to look for another way out. Can everyone say, uh-oh? Some of us believe that we need to help ourselves or help God to bring about God's promises. God, I know you said this. I know this is what you want from me, but let me help you out, God, because you, clearly you need my help. God, I know you promised this to us, but here, let me help you out. So instead of waiting upon God, she begins to put God's promises in her own hands by making it happen herself. Does that sound familiar to any of us here? Just doing it on your own because you just can't wait anymore. Maybe for us there are things in life that we feel are owed to us, like Sarai felt. God, you said this. God, this is how nature goes. God, I, I, I ought to be pregnant by now. I ought to have a lot of children by now. And so we feel that too. Things in life we feel are owed to us, so we begin to feel sorry for ourselves when we don't get it. God's not fair with me. God hasn't come through the things that he's promised me. I deserve better than this. I'm tired of waiting, so therefore I'll do it myself. If you're not going to help, I'll do it myself. Brothers and sisters, friends, I want to tell you right now, there is nothing in this world that is owed to us by God. Not a single thing. We don't deserve a better spouse as much as you might think you do. We don't deserve better children or better church or better pastor or better member or better job or better living condition or better anything. We cry out to God that he's not fair, but here's the thing, you don't want God to be fair. If you want God to be fair, just know that in his fairness comes judgment and death. No. You see, someone like us, people like us, we deserve not God, not life. But death, because you know what? Even on our best day, we don't want God. God's like, if you don't want me here in this life, then you won't have me for eternity. No, we don't want God to be fair. We want God to be merciful. That's what someone said before. You don't want God to be fair. You want him to be merciful. In the midst of your sorrows, your pain, your confusion, your bitterness and anger, the Lord is asking you to do this one single thing. He's saying, just as he told, just as he told Abram and Sarah, he says, wait. Can you wait and trust that I am God? Can you wait? Waiting on him isn't being inactive. On the contrary, it can be one of the most active things you can do while waiting for direction and clarity. Because when we wait on God, God is telling us, I hear what your prayers are. I'm listening. But what you seek and what you desire, understand this people here, what you seek while in your waiting period, what you desire during your waiting period, they are secondary to what I seek and what I desire. Do you get that? This is God saying, what you want, 
and what yours is pining for, all those things are secondary to what I seek and what I desire. Therefore, he says, as you wait, there will be something active, spiritually active going on in your life because as you wait, I will disciple you. As you wait, I will sanctify you. As you wait, you will wait and witness, wait and witness, wait and witness until Jesus returns for his people. As you wait, start investing in people and lead them to know and to enjoy Christ. As you wait, immerse yourself into the big kingdom picture that I have for my people. You see, time's a wasting. When you wait, there are things to be done. When you wait, God's agenda is still going on. Whenever we don't wait, whenever we impatiently say to ourselves, God, you must move and you must act in this way and during this time, we're saying that our lives take center stage. We're saying that it's my will be done, not yours, God. You may be waiting on the Lord for direction and purpose, but know that waiting on the Lord in itself has purpose. In fact, while we wait on the Lord, he will often interrupt your life the life that you think you're owed. He will then rearrange your priorities and finally he'll redirect you back to the course that he wants for you rather than the course you believe you should be on. God is working in your waiting. It's not just an idle time. It is a sanctifying time. It is a time of transformation. May we, like the psalm is saying, Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my Lord, only in you I trust. So they didn't wait on the Lord, but that wasn't their only problem. Another problem was this, that Abram listened to his wife. Can everyone say, say what? Look, good, no one threw anything at me, that's fine. There are plenty of times Men need to listen to their wives. Wives can't say amen. <clears throat> Men are highly influenced by their wives, which is the Bible is always encouraging women to pursue wisdom, and it's always encouraging men to pursue women of wisdom. At the same time, there are a lot of men out there who are just bullheaded. They don't hear. They don't care. They don't even consider and even if they had a wise wife, they tend to ignore even their best advisor. So yes, the problem is on both fronts. But here in this passage, we read of a problem, a very particular one, and that is this. Sarai gets an idea, and Abram listened to her. And not just any idea, Sarai got a bad idea. Like I know for many husbands, we all kind of have this automated response of, yes, dear, don't we? Any questions or requests thrown at us? Pick up some milk. Yes, dear. Do I look pretty? Yes, yes, dear. Right, we, do, we don't do the downcast yet. We do, upbeat. Yes, dear. Can you climb Mount Everest and declare your love for me at the summit? Yes, dear. But as husbands and soon-to-be husbands and men who want to be husbands, we need to know that even though it's good to hear counsel from our wives, Ultimately, and ultimately, we are responsible for the way our families walk with God. We, the men, the husbands. So when I say, listen to your wife, I mean, listen to your wife. Not just comply, not just concede, but listen to hear if it's what God wants or what she wants. Because that's what Abram failed to do. Sarai suggested that Abram have children through her maidservant. And well, Abram said, wow, okay. 
Sure. He went along with it. Abram listened to Adam listened to Eve rather than God, and so again we have another man who chose to listen to someone else before they listened to God. And so to the men here, God did not place you to be the head of your home so that you can bully and abuse and lead astray your wife. If you're doing that, that is unbiblical. It is unspiritual. It is anti-Christian. It is ungodly. It is unholy. And it is downright disgusting. But get this, as wrong as it is to bully your wife and to abuse your wife, it is equally wrong and equally ungodly and equally unholy and equally unbiblical for you as men, as the anointed man of the household, to submit to her and to hand the reins of spiritual leadership over to her. You get that? It's just as unbiblical. So we as men need to stop pushing the spiritual leadership that we've been given off to our wives. God didn't call her to lead. God called you to lead. God called me to lead. But we push it off we push it off to her because we know and she knows and the kids know that she's better prepared at all this than you. She knows the Bible better than me. She prays more than me. She fasts more than me. No more excuses. No more excuses for us as men. This isn't a time for us to despair if you feel like you've fallen back. No, it's time to get prepared. It's time to get prepared because whether you men know this or not, but God has anointed not her, not your children, not anyone else, but you. God has anointed you for your family. Men, are you hearing me? That's a good thing. The responsibility has been placed upon you, and yes, I get it. It may seem overwhelming, but the strength to lead, the wisdom to lead, the spiritual empowerment to lead is also with you. He's not leaving you high and dry, man. Don't be discouraged, but instead be encouraged. It's not too late. Surrender yourself at the feet of Jesus, and he will be faithful to lead you so that you know how to lead her. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So let's say you're waiting. Let's say you're in the midst of trouble and earnestly and passionately seeking after God as you wait. What now? And this is my final point. God gives us this wonderful assurance in that he cares about what you're going through. He knows what you're going through. Every little tiny detail of your life and troubles and sorrows, he knows. So Abram and Sarai decide to take shortcuts in their time of need. They committed to an act that was practiced all around them, polygamy, or in their case, bigamy. All the other nations did it. It was okay. It was political. There were religious things to it. All of them did it. Were there individuals in the Bible that were married to more than one person? Yes. Did God approve of them? Not really. In Genesis 2, we know that God ordained that be one man and one woman become one flesh. The qualifications for godly elders in 1 Timothy and Titus was one husband of two wives, three wives, no, one wife. Virtually any example in scripture of an individual who practiced bigamy or polygamy ended up in sorrow and brokenness. The biggest example being Solomon, who had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines, which through them he began to compromise his faith and his spirit, leading what eventually led, which eventually led to the division of the united kingdom. In Ephesians 5, we know that Paul, when he, whenever he referenced 
Husbands and wives was always using the singular. So it's hard to imagine for us that God willfully sanctioned polygamy when, ready, when really all the scripture evidence points to the fact that it's one flesh. One flesh. One body. One harmony. And so on. But really, it was the influence of the world and the culture they lived in. Francis's friends, we too must be on guard when it comes to the things of the world and what's happening. I'm not just talking about polygamy. I'm talking about sexual promiscuity. I'm talking about premarital sex. I'm talking about abortion. It can be anything because friends will say, go for it. Your lawyers will say, you have the legal right to do what you want. Culture and society says, it's your life. It's your right. It's your body. But God says, stop. Listen to me. Heed my instructions. Know that my words are true. Stop this. It is not my way. It will destroy you. It will impact your future. It will invite darkness into your life. But Sarah and Abram, they took a shortcut. They did something they believed would immediately alleviate a current problem they faced. But predictably, all it did was leave behind a trail, a wound, wounds and brokenness, a pain and suffering. Let's look at Hagar for a second. Sarai, she didn't care for her. She just wanted to use her as a breeder to get a child she wanted. But then when Hagar became pregnant, soon began to feel something of worth. And maybe even a bit superior, Sarai blamed Abram and demanded the right to bring her back down to the status of slave. So Sarah began to mistreat Hagar. And Hagar became so hurt and so bitter that she ran away. Now the thing is this. As bad as it was between Sarai and Hagar's relationship, so it was the same with Abram, because Abram really didn't care for her either. He was sexually attracted to her for that moment, but he didn't love her as a man loves a wife. Abram used and discarded her no differently than Sarai did, and when tensions arose, Abram perfectly was willing to abandon her and throw her into the vindictive hands of his wife. My heart went out. Hagar as I was reading this. Hagar. Poor Hagar. Who was she? She was a nobody. She was a slave. She was somebody whose body was prostituted and used for others' advantage. There was no concern for her life, no concern whatsoever for her feelings. No one cared about her present, and certainly no one cared about her future. Hagar was in the eyes of Abram, in the eyes of Sarah, in the eyes of everyone else, trash, human garbage, human garbage worth nothing. How could anyone expect her to give herself to a man have a child with him, and then somehow be detached for any bond with either the man or the child. No one cared about her. No one cared about her needs. No one cared about her pain. No one cared about her heart. No one cared about her trust. No one cared but God. But God. It was God who saw her. It was God who saw her distress. It was God who saw every tear that came out of her eye. It was God. It was God, and it will always be God. Because only God truly cares for the trouble of the oppressed. 
There's only God who cares about the trouble of his children and his people. So we read in verse 7 that Hagar was on her way home, which was on the path road to Shur. That's the northeastern part of Egypt, which means that Hagar was an Egyptian. And so so like so many people back then, even today, when her life fell apart, she knew of only one place, and that was home. So she decided to walk back. And as she began to walk back, God interrupted her life. God met her on the way. In verse 7, we read that an angel comes to Hagar. This is, by the way, the Bible's first time mentioning an angel of the Lord. And we don't know this angel's name. We don't know who he truly is. But Hagar, for some reason at that moment, certainly understood that this was the Lord himself. And so in verse 13, she says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Now, can you imagine this for a second? A foreign slave woman, discarded, trash garbage used and abused by her mistress and by her master she was nobody by any measure and yet the living god sees her and the living god cares for her and cares for her in spite of all the trouble and all the humiliation and all the pain that she was going through so he appears to her and he comforts her but it wasn't only that it wasn't the fact that god only saw her but god also promised something to her in verse 11 12, we read of a promise that sounds strangely similar to the promise made to Abram. And so God, he made it clear that her son Ishmael will be this wild, independent man who will always be in the face of his brother. You shall call him Ishmael, which meant God hears. But there was one catch. God commanded Hagar to return to Sarai and submit to her. Can you imagine how difficult that must be? That must have been for her. Think how hard that must have been. The promise wasn't just, now I'll bless you, my dear daughter. I'll make your life comfortable and easy and prosperous. No, no, no. It was rather, here is my promise, but I require you to humble yourself. Here is my promise, but I require you to humble yourself, even if you are in the right, even if you are the victim. For some reason, God tells Hagar to go back. Why? Because guess what? There was nothing for her back in Egypt. Because of the promises of the covenant can only be found in the household of Abram. Look, it's no different with us today. God may not be asking you to go back to a specific person, but he's asking you to come back to him. Because it's only in his presence is where you'll find his covenant promises. Returning back to God is difficult, isn't it? Humility is difficult to possess. Repentance is a hard pill to swallow. In fact, for Hagar, there was no guarantee that she would not again get mistreated. But what did she have? The only thing she did have, and that was the promises of God. And brothers and sisters, no matter what the world promises you, the only promises that you truly have are the promises of God. The God who sees you, the God who hears you, the God who speaks to you. Here's what I believe the Lord is saying to us all today. Some of you guys might be at the end of your rope. Maybe you just want to quit and go away. Maybe marriage is hard. Maybe work is unfulfilling. Maybe friends aren't what they appear to be, so you just want to start all over. Start all over. Get away from it all. Run away, but God is calling you to return to the place where he first called you. Maybe it's the marriage that you're in. Maybe it's the home he put you in. Maybe it's this church he brought you to. Yes, it's often hard. 
and not all troubles will go away. But get this, hear me out. The path of obedience, the path of trusting in God, though it may be hard, though it may be difficult and riddled with discomfort, is and always will be a path of blessing. Hear me out. The path of obedience, the path of trusting in God, will always lead to a path of blessing. Why? Does that mean your life will get easier? That you'll finally win the jackpot? That you'll finally get that promotion if you obey, if you trust God? No, because this path, this path of obedience is a path that will lead to God's forgiveness. It's on this path where you'll find restoration for your soul. Don't you know that it's not your body that's weary. It's not your mind that's weary. It is your spirit that's longing for Christ. And it is on this path that you'll find restoration for your soul. This is the path where you'll find hope for tomorrow. It is on this path, this path of obedience, where you'll find meaning in your life. It's not back in Egypt, which, by the way, the Bible represents as always the world. It's on the path of obedience where you'll truly experience the care of God, the love of God, and the grace and mercy of God. Hallelujah. So what did Hagar do? She went back. In verse 15, we're told that Abram named her baby Ishmael. And so here at the end of the story, it seems that Hagar has finally learned to walk by faith on the path of obedience because she lives under Sarai. She lives clinging on to the promises of God. She raised her son named God hears. And in every day, with every trouble, that comes her way. With every uncertainty, day by day by day, she lived waiting upon the Lord. That's it. And God is asking all of us to wait on him. And as you wait, pursue him. Witness and wait. Grow and wait. Serve and wait. Your life may seem like it is at a standstill, but know that God's world is still revolving. God's world, God's agenda is still moving and there's still a job to be done. But also know that as you wait, even though you face troubles, it's only God who will see you. It's only God who hears you because it's only God who truly cares for you. So you may have walked off the path of obedience. You may have done things that God was opposed to. But it's for those who can't help themselves. It's for those who have fallen behind. It's for those who feel like they failed, who are inadequate. These are people that God cares for. You see, it was for the miserable nobodies that God was concerned for. And his concern is and will always be based on nothing less than the wonderful compassion and grace of Jesus Christ. So come to Jesus today, he says. Come to him today. Because it's only in his sweet embrace where you'll find the promises of God in your life. And, this, and these promises will not be found in anything else it will not be found in your Egypt. It will only be found in the path of obedience that God has set for you. His name is Christ. Follow him. Amen? Let's pray. lesson we learn from this passage, Father, is that it would seem to make sense for Abram and Sarah to receive blessing after blessing, but what we've been seeing so far is disobedience and faithlessness. And the last person who we think 
is worthy of your blessing. Hagar, this prostituted, marginalized nobody from a distant land, and yet, God, you lifted her up. In the midst of her pain and her sorrows, you lifted her up. Father, because you are God of grace, and you lavish your grace upon those who know that they don't deserve it, upon those who say, I've done wrong, I can't do any better. God, I am broken, I need you. I don't know where you're at in your walk with the Lord. Perhaps you don't even have a relationship with Christ. Today is the day. Today is the day. Submit and surrender yourself at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I surrender my heart. I surrender my ambitions, my desires, my entire being because I can't do this on my own. I have tried and I've failed and I only am leading just brokenness and pain and it's all surrounding me. But no, Lord, I need sweet peace in my soul. I need to be restored. And Father, you said you promised that only in Christ Jesus can I be restored. I'm submitting myself to that promise. I need you. And for those, for those of you who are with God and walking with him and you're praying, you're seeking clarity and direction and you're waiting, the Lord says, wait some more. When the Lord speaks, you will know because the sheep know the shepherd's voice. But wait. Don't listen to anyone else. But listen to the words of God. And in your patience and in your waiting, seek actively the work of the Lord and what He wants from you. Don't be so focused on what you want. But open your heart and your mind to the things that God wants. So let's take a moment and pray. Surrendering ourselves, repenting, giving ourselves over to the Lord, seeking direction, waiting upon God, even if it's just in silence. Let's take a moment and pray, and let's go into our last song.